and welcome to the Think MHK podcast presented by the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce. On this podcast, you will hear about a variety of local matters pertaining to the business community. You also hear from local business owners to hear their story and gain valuable business insights. Thanks for tuning in today. We have a very special guest with us today and someone that I have admired since I moved to Manhattan and and is, is certainly somebody who was very warm in, in greeting me to the community three years ago when I got here, but uh, is legendary in the community and is certainly legendary within the chamber. Uh, but our guest today is C. Clyde Jones. C. Clyde, how are you today? Hey, I'm top of the world today and I'm especially happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. Uh, I will say that when I moved to Manhattan three years ago, um, you were one of the first people to reach out and invite me over to your house for dinner. And I certainly appreciate that. And I know La Butler, my predecessor, has said the exact, told the exact same story. So obviously one of your jobs is welcoming new chamber presidents. I hope you won't have to worry about doing that for a while. Well, you are required on my timeline to stay here longer than I'd live. <laughs> Oh, well, I don't know about all that, but uh, but I, my plan is to stay here for a while. So thank you again for being with us. So I did a little research uh, on you before we started this interview and including how you came to be here. Uh, you and I have similar stories in that we probably both came to Manhattan um, a little pessimistic about maybe what the outcome of that visit was going to be, but both uh, were convinced just after one visit of how wonderful the community was. So tell a little bit about that story and how you ended up here uh, in Manhattan. Well, in 1960, I, I was the assistant dean of the College of Commerce and Business at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. And uh, one spring day, I had a telephone call from um, T. Marshall Hahn, the Dean of Arts and Sciences at Kansas State University. And he wanted me to come to Manhattan for an interview to be head of the Department of Business Administration. At that time, uh, Kansas State had schools instead of colleges, and Marshall was the Dean of Arts and Sciences, the School of Arts and Sciences, and Business Administration was a department in that school. In fact, it was the largest department in arts and sciences. The intention was that they bring in somebody as head of that department who could develop it into a school. And so I, I had my charge from day one. However, when he first called, I said, nope, I won't even come for a visit. Why not? I don't want to live in Kansas. Well, why not? It's too flat, too hot, too windy. I just don't want to live in Kansas. And Marshall said to me, hey, You've been watching too much Gunsmoke. <laughs> said, we're not that way at all. You, you need to come out and see for yourself. Actually, I turned him down for probably three days. And he was a man who was determined. He, I, I watched him operate as an administrator. He never took no for an answer on anything. Whatever he wanted, he got. And he kept calling me until I said, all right, I'll come for a visit. I came on April 1st, 1960. And Manhattan had had six weeks of ice on the ground from February to the 1st of April. There was not a green blade of grass or a leaf on a tree when I got here. The ice had just gone off. He drove me around, showed me uh, the area, and uh, I called my sweet wife Midge that evening. I said, honey, you're not going to believe it. They've got trees 
and the hills. It's a beautiful place, in spite of being frozen out. <laughs> but I, I truly fell in love with Manhattan the minute I got here. It was very similar for me because I had, of course, I grew up in the region, but um, I had thought, always thought of Manhattan as a sleepy little college town. And when I got here, the vibrancy was uh, pretty amazing. So uh, we hear a lot of times about people who uh, have to see it to believe it, but once they get here, they believe it. And so you and I are examples of that. And, okay. and I, you're originally from West Virginia, correct? You're a mountaineer. Yes, I grew up in Huntington, West Virginia. Well, actually, uh, Huntington's on the Ohio River and is not mountainous I at all, a little hilly, okay. but not at all unlike this area in terms of terrain. Uh, you talked a little bit about this, but when you got here, the, the School of Business was under another a college or school or department. It was the Department time. of Business Administration in the School of Arts and Sciences. Yeah, and one of the things we show people when we bring them to town is the beautiful School of Business uh, at, on campus. But you actually took that into its own college. Talk about the process of doing that, and and then your impression of the growth in the College of Business over the years. Well, in 1959, the year before I came, the Department of Business moved from a Quonset hut on the uh, north side of the campus by agriculture into Calvin Hall, which had been the home of home economics. In 1959, uh, home economics moved into their new building called Justin Hall. And there's a very amusing story connected with that. The dean was Doretta Hoffman, and she refused to move from Calvin to Justin when the new building opened because it didn't have all the furnishings that she wanted. Well, somebody in Anderson Hall said, okay, we'll move business into Justin Hall. Doretta moved that day. <laughs> when uh, business moved into there, well, I'll take it in 1960 when I arrived, uh, we rattled around like marbles in a cigar box. We had 15 faculty members. I think there were 680 students that year, and that's a big building. And every faculty member had a private office. We taught every single class that we conducted in classrooms in that building. And uh, that was unheard of in that day, even even at then. And by the way, uh, I came in 1960. K-State's enrollment at that time was around 8,000. So obviously now, as you see this, the uh, the current college and and the advancements that have gone on there, what, what are some thoughts that you have about that? I was invited to sit on the platform at the dedication of that new building. And I don't know which wag it was, some vice president of K-State. As he was talking about the beauty of the new building, he turned around and looked at me and he said, Clyde, don't you wish you were here instead of Calvin Hall? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I couldn't answer, of course, under those circumstances. So what are some of the accomplishments that you had at Kansas State that you look back on most fondly? Well, I guess we'd start with being able to uh, carry out the charge that I was brought here for to move from a departmental status to a school of business. And I did accomplish that in two years. I say I accomplished it, and I really did. I didn't have much help with it. The dean promised me three new positions when I came. So moving from 15 positions to 18. And um, he also promised any support that I needed in travel money or whatever it took. And I recruited 
pretty much all over the Midwest and Mid-South of the United States. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Big Ten schools like Minnesota, Illinois, Indiana. Within two years, I had moved from having zero faculty members with terminal degrees to having about 60% of our classes taught by people with terminal degrees. And I have to tell you a strange one about myself. When I came in 1960, I had the only PhD on the faculty. Mine did not count because it was in American history. (laughs) And so uh, we really didn't have a single degree that counted toward what they call the terminal requirement. I was able to go out and recruit young faculty some, uh, I think in, in uh, three cases, I stole faculty members from other universities. Uh, I hired one from Penn State in finance and uh, one from Louisiana in, in uh, accounting. And, and uh, for the most part, though, I looked for new doctoral. In fact, occasionally I'd hire one with a PhD not completed. But we we built a a terminal-level faculty so that I was not too surprised when President McCain called me one day, 1962, his question, how would you like to be a dean? Wow, President, I would love being a dean. And he said, well, I'm ready to take a recommendation to Board of Regents that we convert your Department of Business Administration to the School of Agribusiness. I said, What? Yeah, he said, uh, you were brought here because you had a link between agriculture and business, and and, uh, I I think we should call it the School of Agribusiness. I said, President, I've done a lot of thinking about that, so I knew that was your thinking. I think I'd have difficulty recruiting faculty and enticing students if we don't call it School of Business. And he shocked the life out of me. He said, we can't call it the School of Business. Well, why not? Because KU has a School of Business. Oh, come on now. He said, no. He said, we have an unwritten agreement that Kansas State will not establish a School of Business and the University of Kansas will not establish a School of Home Economics. It's a deal we made years ago and I've got to abide by that. So he challenged me, you find me a name other than School of Business. Well, I did a quick research. I had come from the College of Commerce and Business Administration in Illinois, and University of Wisconsin had a School of Commerce. Easy choice. I said, okay, we'll call it a School of Commerce. And I think the name was changed to College of Business Administration, probably 1968, something like that. Interesting. I don't know that I've heard that story before. So I, I would I would have to take that as maybe uh, one of my major accomplishments at K-State. And the second one will be a surprise, I think, to everybody. That's the building of what is now the Bill Snyder Family Stadium. I was chair of the Athletic Council from 1965 to 75, and in 1967, we came to the obvious conclusion. We had to replace the old Memorial Stadium, which had a seating capacity of 15,000. If you added bleachers, you could get up to 22. And the big eight other schools just wanted nothing to do with coming to play us here. So in 67, the Athletic Council decided to start planning for a new stadium. We had an engineer on the council from Topeka named John Frazier, and our athletic director at that time was B. Lee. Well, the two of them had gone to New Mexico and had looked at the basketball arena down there. It was called the Pit. And um, the construction of that basketball arena was a uh, 
reinforced concrete on grade. They had hollowed out an area and poured reinforced concrete on grade and put the seats on those. And they came back and told me, said, that's the technique we ought to use. Well, where would we build it? Well, John Fraser, the engineer, said there's a perfectly proper area over on the agricultural experiment station land that has a kind of a hollowed out ravine. It's not a deep ravine, but that would be the place where we should put it. Well, of course, the School of Agriculture says, no way, you're not going to use our land. I, I had a stroke of genius. I went down to Ashland Bottoms, McDowell Creek Road, and purchased a 160-acre farm using some uh, athletic money. And I went to the dean of agriculture and said, how would you like to have a beautiful 160-acre farm right next to the experimentation land you've already got down there? And we'll trade it to you for those few acres that we'd like to build our stadium on. Hey, you got a deal. A little proud of myself for that approach. Anyhow, uh, we went ahead in 67 and broke ground at the location where our stadium is today. We poured reinforced concrete. Well, we poured concrete and reinforced it. And the east side and west side stands that you see there today are on those same concrete slabs. It has never been replaced since 1967. The seats, of course, have been replaced many times. But um, here's the clinker. We spent $1.6 million for a 34,000-seat stadium. And nobody will believe that when, when you tell them that. If we use steel uh, framing for our stadium, it would cost a minimum of $20,000 at that time. We know that because Wichita State University added a few seats, and we knew what they paid for that. If you ask people today how much a 34,000-seat stadium would have cost in 1967, they wouldn't even come close to $1.6 million. And, of course, now it's one of the nicest stadiums, I think, in the Big 12. Well, and, and uh, I think there's around $290 million. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's been a few more now. dollars in it since, but, since the um, original... I, I have to be extremely proud of what I was able to do in, in leading the, the uh, team that built that stadium. That's a great story. So since your retirement, you've led a life of service. And uh, what made you decide to get involved with organizations like Shepherd's Crossing, uh, among others? Jason, I started out in 1960 in Manhattan, Kansas, getting involved with, uh, I was president of the American Red Cross board and, and uh, got involved immediately with what at that time was called the Community Fund, later became the United Way. I headed that up a couple of times. And, and uh, so from the very beginning, I was welcomed into the community and given a leadership role in, in uh, several organizations. And uh, it just was something that I, and by by the way, it was new for me. I had not been active in Illinois, and um, it was something that was rewarding. I found great satisfaction in, in being able to take the leadership of an organization and move it from almost ground zero in some cases to very successful. Uh, and. Um, I, I never stopped from 1960 until I retired in 86, being involved in some way with a variety of social agencies. Shepherd Crossing was not formed until 2001, and uh, so I had a background of working closely uh, 
Let me digress a second and tell you that in uh, 1990, I did a very comprehensive community needs assessment. And when I say I did it, I tried to farm it out and uh, couldn't find anybody to take it over. So I ended up doing it myself and uh, became aware of what the social service needs of the community were. And uh, we had 47 agencies at that time, and yet we still had uh, notorious gaps in service, especially access to mental health uh, and uh, child care. And by the way, those two shortcomings still exist today. Um, and I, I guess... You know, I haven't thought about this answer before. I think it's my love of Manhattan. Says, hey, guy, you owe this community, so pay up. Well, obviously, the community owes you a debt and for some of those things as well. And I've heard you talk about um, how how your family was a very important part of that, including your late wife, Midge. Um, how, How did your family influence the person you became? I was married to a... Woman who was deeply committed to, uh, I guess, personal connections with people of all walks. Uh, she became involved in the community very heavily. She was in something called PEO, which a lot of men wouldn't even have heard of. But she actually ended up moving from local to state to international level office with that organization. And she knew people from almost every part of town, almost every walk of life. She became very heavily involved with the Manhattan Public Library, for example. She delivered Meals on Wheels. She set an example for me to become involved more in the community. And I didn't need a lot of nudging, but I was pretty preoccupied with my work at the university. I, I really did have a full load there, and uh, but she supported me and encouraged me to uh, get involved in the community. Our guest today on the Think MHK podcast is C. Clyde Jones. We're going to take a break. C. Clyde, can you stick around with us and we'll come back and talk a little bit about your work with the Manhattan Area Chamber? I would be delighted. The Think MHK podcast is brought to you by the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce. Don't forget to subscribe and like the Think MHK podcast on your preferred podcast provider, and you will never risk missing an episode. If you enjoyed our show, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. To find out more about today's topic or other chamber activities, please go to manhattan.org. And now back to today's show. Welcome back to the Think MHK podcast. Our guest for today's show is C. Clyde Jones. Uh, C. Clyde, we are going to talk a little bit now about your experience with the Manhattan Area Chamber. You've been, you were an, you've been an important part of our organization for a number of years, and you became engaged in the chamber very early in your time in Manhattan. Why did you decide to do that? Well, that is an easy question to answer. When I arrived here in August of 1960, My new boss, Dean Marshall Hahn, said, Clyde, there are two things you have to do. You have to join the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. You have to join the Manhattan Rotary Club. And um, I've given that word of advice now to every newcomer to Manhattan. Anytime anybody asks me, in fact, very recently, Stormont Vale brought in a new regional administrator, Mm -hmm. Mary Martell. Mm -hmm. I said, Mary, I'm going to give you the same advice I got. Join the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce and join the Manhattan Rotary Club, and she has done both. So I I tell everybody that. 
And, and we're grateful for that. And I know you also are still very engaged in Rotary. So um, so that's, that is good advice for people. So less than five years after moving here, you were named president of the chamber, which is interesting because in those days, the head volunteer was president. Today, it's chamber. Right. And the head executive is president. So you and I also have that in common. We both have been president of the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce. I use the term meteoric rise. You 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 rose up in the organization very quickly. What, why do you think that was? My predecessor had not been terribly active in community. Marshall Hahn, who hired me, told me to get involved in the community. And the two organizations he suggested, um, and I immediately had opportunities with the chamber to get involved in committee work. And, and uh, anytime we had a recruiting effort, uh, I was happy to take the part of the university. In, in and, and by the way, our president at that time, Jim McCain, uh, was not terribly active in that type of activity. So I was welcomed by the chamber. Uh, I guess I must have made a halfway decent impression, too, because I would get a call. Hey, we've got a business prospect that we're looking at. Uh, can you come help? And uh, Lud Fisher, the uh, executive director at that time, uh, was a very close personal friend from day one, and he would use me in every way he could to uh, recruit new members, to uh, promote the chamber with any kind of a group that we could. It just came naturally for me to be involved, I guess. When you brought up Lud Fisher, obviously one of our legendary former directors slash presidents, um, what was working with Lud like? Well, um, Lud was a man who never knew a stranger. Uh, he also uh, never had an enemy. Uh, people loved him and um, uh, easygoing, not aggressive at all in, in pursuing objectives. The... Uh, board of directors at that time, he was paid $10,000 a year. My first year as president, I went to the board and said, we've got to pay this man a decent salary. I said, $10,000 is disgraceful. We had an attorney on the board at that time who said, you're just like all those other university people. You think everybody ought to be paid like a full professor? <laughs> and they turned me down. They wouldn't increase his salary from 10000 And by the way, he had only one employee. He had an assistant named Afton Detmer. At that time, our office was a little place, uh, well, you know where Barry's drugstore is now. There was a little narrow slot back in, in next to that Wareham Hotel, uh, just the tiniest little office you've ever seen. And uh, our operating budget was probably no more than 25000 at that time. But Ludd was a beautiful person to work with, never disagreeable, always helpful. Anything that I wanted to accomplish, he would do his best to help me succeed in it. Well, and of course, now the, the building is, our building is named after Lud Fisher, and then our Citizen of the Year Award is named after Lud Fisher, and, De, and his son Dave, who's still around, uh, was a chair of the chamber at one point, yes. too. So it's always interesting to hear stories about, he was a long-termer, obviously, and his picture still hangs in our boardroom. Do you remember 
any of the accomplishments that you were chairman in 1965, uh, president in 1965. Do you remember any of the accomplishments during that time well, that you worked? The, the, the one thing that I'm most proud of that nobody even knows about, and uh, this will surprise you, but I organized a welcoming dinner for new Kansas State University faculty. We had a sit-down dinner at the country club as a chamber sponsored. We had our executive and uh, our, our executive board, and and uh, we'd bring in. Uh, well, probably another dozen or so prominent business people to a sit-down dinner at the country club. I think that's something we ought to revive because when new faculty come to town, there's often a very strong resentment of business. I discovered when I arrived here in 1960 that being head of the Department of Business was not very popular with sociology and a lot of the other departments on campus. As I think back on it, I know it meant the world to the university to have me do that. The other thing that was a failure, but I worked hard at it, we tried to recruit a company from Pennsylvania called New Holland. They, they were a part of, I think, the Remington Corporation at that time, and they were going to build a uh, factory here or somewhere to produce uh, tractors. We spent a lot of time and money recruiting them and lost to Grand Island, Nebraska. But again, uh, the effort that we made uh, was well-organized and, and uh, I, I thought extremely well done. And they made it clear to us that locational features were the only thing that kept them from coming here. We didn't have a site where they could build that was anything close to as good as Grand Island, Nebraska. That's an interesting story, number one, because we still face some of those site challenges today. Uh, one of our goals for the last couple of years has been uh, expanding our business park because we've lost opportunities as well. Um, I have worked with New Holland in Grand Island when I was in Lincoln. It's now Case New Holland, but uh, we helped them get a foreign trade zone when I was in Lincoln. So that's, that's interesting too. But it doesn't surprise me that economic development losses stick with you much more than the wins do. And I, I can almost give you verbatim all the losses. And sometimes you tend to gloss over the wins and, and, uh, and that's unfortunate, but, um, but it's not uncommon. So, um, well, we, we learned the reason I put it in there is accomplished. We learned quite a bit in our loss. Sure. Yeah. And probably led to what has turned into some other big projects. So why is the chamber important to Manhattan? Oh, my goodness. You got an hour and a half for me to talk. <laughs> well, I think we had an hour, but uh, we may have used some of that already. You named economic development, and I would put that probably at the top of the list. This community needs to continue to grow. Right now, uh, we're in what uh, I think we'd call a stagnant period. Uh, I know university enrollment's down and uh, population growth seems to have settled down. I think the Chamber of Commerce can be a leader in, in developing new strategies, new approaches. Uh, and, and again, I'd say economic development, in my mind, has to be the number one objective of the Chamber. Now, the second, I, I, I would put support of small business uh, very close to the top of the list. Small businesses do not have the resources to do all of the uh, advertising and attractions of customers that big corporations do. And the chamber can lend support. 
to small businesses. I, I, I think there are statistics that tell you that small business generates something like 80% of the jobs in an area. And uh, we have a number of small businesses here that are floundering nationwide. And so uh, I would say the importance of the chamber in supporting small business. And then I'm going to throw a third one at you that uh, may surprise you. I'd love to see the chamber more supportive of the arts, you know, what I would call uh, aesthetical features of our community. People are attracted to live here, not by the buildings that the chamber operates out of, but the uh, McCain Auditorium programs, uh, the Manhattan Arts Center, some of the things they do. But we've got a shortage, really, of widespread support for the arts in our community. And I've always believed that the chamber could take a leadership role and I don't know, do we have an arts committee as a part of the chamber? We we don't. We partner with the uh, Community Foundation uh, on some of their efforts, but that's certainly something that we could take a look at. So earlier in this season, uh, Lyle Butler was on with us for a show, and he's often cited you as a mentor and a friend. How did, how did the chamber evolve during Lyle's 20 years? Uh, the chamber had uh, kind of gotten off track, and I didn't feel uh, when when Lau came on board that uh, our chamber was as strong as it had been. He brought in an approach of uh, civility, just such an easy person to get to know and work with. His personality, I think, was his major success vehicle in building support. He just... Uh, didn't rub people the wrong way. And we'd had a couple of predecessors who did. He worked tirelessly also. I, I think he devoted, uh, he really devoted his life to the chamber as he was the head of it. I have nothing but admiration and respect for Lyle. Well, I feel the same way, and I think that that's a great description. So you've been involved with the chamber now for over 60 years. How did you feel when the organization renamed the vol its Volunteer of the Year Award after you? Cloud Nine. Interesting story about that was that Lyle Butler called me one day and said, are you home? Yeah, well, can I come see you? Well, he came and told me that the board had proposed, if it was all right with me, that they named the Volunteer of the Year Award for me. I said, you think you really have to ask my permission for that? I said, I would be so honored. It just... Uh, well, it thrilled Midge and me both. I put that down as one of the high points of my life. Well, that's good to hear. And we talked about, we have three awards named after people, and it's you and our Citizen of the Year courses, Lud Fishery, we talked about. And then uh, our new leadership award is named after Lyle Butler. So uh, obviously we talked about three people who are very important to the chamber's history, including you. So speaking of history and celebrating, uh, December, we are coming up on a pretty monumental date. That's uh, when you're, you're going to turn 100. So what are the plans for the 100th birthday celebration? Well, very, very heavily underway. They've been underway now, uh, golly, uh, I think sometime last fall, the College of Business called me. Well, the dean's assistant called me, Melanie Horton, and said the College of Business would like to host 
your 100th birthday party. I said, wow, you're on. I'd, I'd been struggling with the question, how do I put on an affair? I, I, I would have to do it personally. I'd been having two birthday parties a year starting in 2016, and I was paying for those. It was costing me thousands of bucks to host a party. And I said, I would love to have you host my party. <laughs> and they're going to do it in the business building. And she asked, is it okay if we do it in June to avoid the chance of bad weather in December? I said, yeah, that is great. I was so excited. She's now calm down. It's going to cost you something. Ooh, drop the other shoe. You have to write your life story and have it available to us in December so that we can publish it and give a copy to everyone who comes to the party. I said, hey, that's not a big cost. I'd love to do that. So in December, I sent them 130 pages of a manuscript and uh, with a promise that they would do editing. Unfortunately, they did very little editing. So right now, I'm doing a lot of formatting and deleting irrelevant things and taking out stories that have people's names in them that uh, might be embarrassed. <laughs> One of the things I've done, Jason, oh, I'm going to say first 80 pages is a chronological treatment of from my birth to actually my first year here at K-State. Then I got the idea, you know, I think readers might enjoy short stories more than a continuing chronology. So I switched to using uh, either one page and one, one short story is 12 pages, and I'm still writing some. Well, we can't wait to read it. So, C. Clyde, every show we do a series of rapid-fire questions with our guests. Here we go. Something people often find surprising about you. Oh, I think the fact that my Ph.D. that got me the job here is in American history and not in a business field. Yeah, and we talked about that earlier, and that is that is definitely an interesting um, fact. Best piece of advice you ever received? To join the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce when I arrived in Manhattan. So we need to clip that out, and we need to play that in, in a series of commercials. So uh, appreciate that uh, that uh, promotion. Biggest lesson the pandemic taught you? The need to be resilient. To uh, I actually had COVID-19 in December. At my age, I was not expected to survive. I have heart trouble and I'm a diabetic. And every piece of literature said old people with those two ailments will not survive it. So uh, the Lord has purpose for me. So I've, I've followed that. Samsung, Apple, or other? Samsung. I have an Android phone. Okay. And then texting or talking? Oh, texting. Texting? You prefer to text than talk? Yes. Okay. Well, that's an interesting fact I would not have guessed. What is your favorite business book? From Good to Great oh. by Jim Collins. Yeah, that's a good book. Who is the first person that comes to mind when you hear the word successful business person and why? Warren Buffett. He has accomplished so much uh, in the business building, building a business empire with people respecting him and, and uh I, I, I've never heard anything negative written about Warren Buffett. He's a pretty impressive person, and you are a very impressive person, and I am thrilled that you took the time to be with us today. Uh, Manhattan is a better place because of you, and, and we appreciate your leadership, and we appreciate your service to the community. Well, thank you so much for having me with you today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think MHK, a podcast produced by the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce. 
If you enjoyed the Think MHK podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe and share it out on your social media channels. Feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce. Thank you.